think uh, we were going to do 13 weeks, but I'm actually going to finish up next week. Um, there's one more uh, thing I want to talk to you about, and then I think we've pretty well covered everything that we need to in the book. The rest of it's a little bit more, uh, it's deeper than, than what we have, and I started studying through it, and I thought, you know what, that's not going to be helpful for us, so, so there will be a little bit of change in the schedule. Let me pray and, and uh, we'll begin. Father, we, uh, are gracious, we are grateful for Your grace in our lives. We're thankful that we can each be here this morning and have an opportunity to reflect on You and Your grace in our lives. We pray that You would speak to us this morning and uh, in both services that, that we would uh, have our spiritual ears open, that we would not be deaf to, to Your words, but that we would respond to it as well, that we would understand what, what is being said and, and be able to apply it to our lives. Uh, we recognize that we each need to grow and, and uh, we each are in need of, of more grace so that we can become more and more like our Savior. And that process continues all the way until death. And so we ask for your help in each of our lives to take the next step spiritually that we would uh, find out what it is that's pleasing to you and do it. And uh, we pray also that we'd get a better sense of who you are today, that that we would understand more about your character and, and about how you deal with people and, and as a result that it would change the way that we think and the way that we live. Help us in this hour now as we uh, look into the relationship of the church to grace and law, and uh, we ask for your help as we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we've been talking about the uh, the different economies of God's uh, giving of His revelation throughout history. So you have uh, from from the beginning of mankind with Adam all the way until the end of time, we could say, and that is um, the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, which will lead into the eternal kingdom, but at that point there will be no more dispensations. And so today we want to talk about the the uh, the relationship of the church to law and grace. Primarily law. Next week we'll look at at grace. There are three things that I've reminded you about nearly every week that distinguish us, or at least our understanding of the scriptures dispensational understanding versus covenant theology understanding. Um, there are three things that distinguish us. One is that we recognize a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Two is that that, um, that, there, that that we try to use in every part of the Scriptures a consistent, literal interpretation of the Scriptures. So that when we come to prophecies, for example, we're not saying that there's a double fulfillment. There's not... Uh, multiple things going on here, that there was one intent uh, of the prophetic writers and uh, and we take those things to be literal. Like, for example, in Revelation, uh, we, we take those to be literal. And then the third distinction is that God's primary purpose in the world is not to save man, although that is one of His purposes. It is to glorify Himself. And uh, He's been doing this in... Eternity past, all the way till eternity future, He will be glorifying Himself. And He does it with or without human beings. So, um, 
uh, without them being saved, I could say. I mean, even in the judgment of the wicked, God can be glorified. Psalm talks about that. And so, uh, so we believe that the unifying theme in the Scripture is that God is glorifying Himself based on passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Romans 11.36, for from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so God is glorifying Himself. Um, so in order to, to, to come to this sort of understanding of Scripture, we have, to, we have to use the basic tools of interpretation. We, we took one week to remind us about those tools um, that we need to look at things in their grammatical, historical, uh, literary context that, that when the authors were writing, they, they weren't writing something about something they didn't know. Um, that They were actually uh, not just passive in, in their writing, but they were active. And um, although they didn't know, understand all the implications of what they were saying, uh, I don't think any of us understand all the implications of what we were saying, but they understood the meaning of what they were saying. So when someone like uh, Jonah spoke about uh, a Redeemer, about uh, or Job talking about my Redeemer liveth, he didn't know that it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth who would die and ro- raise from the dead, right? He didn't know that. But he did know that there was going to be a Redeemer that would save Israel. And, uh, and so, he didn't understand all the implications of what he was saying, but he understood the meaning of it. Okay? And what, what can happen is, when we come to a... If we, have, if we take a covenant theological perspective of the Scriptures, what we're really doing is we're saying, okay, uh, the church is Israel, so when they make these statements about Israel, they're also making them about the church. And I would say that that has more to do with meaning than, than implication. And, and so there's a bit of a difference there. Now, with regard to the Mosaic Law, this is where we want to give our attention this morning. With regard to the Mosaic Law, covenant theology disagrees with our understanding of, of the church's relationship to the Mosaic Law. So what do I mean by the Mosaic Law? Can anyone help me out? Trish. Yeah, it, it includes the Ten Commandments, but right, right. So the laws of Moses are the laws given to Moses. So we're talking about Mount Sinai, all the way till the time of Jesus' resurrection, basically his ascension. Uh, you you have these laws that are given to not just Moses, but primarily Moses. He remember if you if you're reading in the the scripture along with the scripture reading that our church is doing. Uh, on your own time, uh, then you have come to Exodus and you're starting to read about that. You've gotten to Exodus 20 and and following and, and it starts to lay out and you get to Leviticus and Numbers and these laws just continue and continue. How many laws are there? Does anyone know? What was it? Close. 613. 613 laws that, that the... Uh, that the uh, Pharisees basically took from the Old Testament said these are the laws of of Moses, and um, and those can be broken down into three main categories. All right, so we have um, we have three categories. First, we have the civil laws. 
someone tell me an example of a civil law? You can use today's an example from today or something from the scripture. Mark. Okay, speeding, right? That from today or from? Watch, kid. Um, so, so yeah, you have things like uh, property laws, um, laws that that have to do with with the um, with the government, how they're how they're requiring us to do so. Laws of marriage, uh, or in the Old Testament, when an ox gores a neighbor, what do you do? We read about that earlier this week in our Bible reading. So, so those are those are examples of civil laws. Secondly, you have ceremonial laws. Someone give me an example of a ceremonial law. Right. Right, exactly. Okay, all the all the um this this sounds kind of pejorative, a negative type of term, but all the ritualistic type things that were required. Um okay, the Sabbath, all the Sabbath laws that come, uh what kind of meats you could eat or not eat. Um, all the all the right, all the offerings, the circumcision, all those sorts of things. Those are ceremonial. The 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 purification of ourselves when we stand in order for us to stand before a holy God. When I say us, I'm saying meaning uh, Israel, really. But um, so ceremonial. Then the third category that that is in the law of Moses: first civil, then ceremonial, and the third is moral. Okay, give me an example of moral laws. Okay. Adultery, Sandra. Okay, so so basically, what what Trish was talking about before the Ten Commandments. What make up the Ten Commandments? You have the first four that talk about our relationship with God, and then the last six that talk about our relationship with our neighbor, and that it has more to do than just property laws, but it has to do with actually the way that we feel about them, the way that we treat them in our hearts and, and things, and obviously Christ. Took that a step further and said, "It's it's not just that you stop murdering or that you don't murder; it's that you don't hate, and so on." All right. So, so what covenant theology argues is that that they are still obligated to fulfill or to obey one aspect of that law. Okay, one of those three: civil, ceremonial, moral. Which one do you think it is? Moral. Okay, they they wouldn't still be following the civil laws, right? That that um you have to uh um you have to uh you have to replace you have to replace an ox if 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 your ox kills another ox or or an animal or something like that they they're not fulfilling or or still obeying the sabbath laws or hopefully uh you know things like sacrifices and things like that so so it's the moral law that that covenant theology tends to follow today they suggest that moral laws make up the eternal, unchangeable, moral absolutes of God. That when God gave those laws to Moses, those were eternal and unchanging. All right, And so because they were given to Moses and they were that, then they still are in effect for us today as the church. And so they would, they would basically make two options for a believer today. You either follow the moral law of Moses or you are a lawless person. Those are the only two options. Okay, so either follow uh, the moral law or apologize for that being so dark, but um, follow the moral law of Moses or or you are lawless or 
You put in your blank there, lawlessness. <clears throat> All right. So, what I want to do today is I want to show why that that statement is not accurate. That that we must obey the moral law of Moses. That we take all of Moses' law and we boil it down to the moral laws. We, we pull the moral laws out of it and we just obey that. Okay. And the first reason, there are three, three problems with that sort of idea. <clears throat> the first is that there are moral absolutes apart from the Mosaic law. Okay? There are moral absolutes apart from the Mosaic law. It's true that the Mosaic Law does include eternal, unchangeable moral absolutes in it. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about when I say moral absolutes? Okay, that, that this is right compared to that which is wrong. Okay, can you think of an example of an eternal, unchangeable moral absolute inside of the Mosaic Law? Mark. Okay. Um, okay, commandment number one. You shall worship God and Him only. The second one, do not make any idols or graven images. Okay? You can go through the Ten Commandments, you could find lots of moral, eternal, unchanging laws. So, so what their argument is, is that, that, um, that those are, because they've been given by, or to Moses, through Moses, by Moses, then, then they are for us as well. But that's not the only way that God presents moral absolutes. Um, that's what, that's we need to recognize that that's how he did it to one people group during one specific time, okay, through one specific dispensation, and so the reason we know that God does that, that these are not moral absolutes that are uh, that are for us because they were given by Moses. Okay, there's another reason that we have to follow those same moral absolutes. I'll talk about that in a second. But, but the reason that we know that it's not because they were given to Moses is because weren't there moral absolutes before Moses came around? Okay, were there, were there any eternal, unchanging truths that God gave to Abraham or Adam? Absolutely, right? So, God's moral absolutes are eternal not because they were given to Moses, but because they're from God. And just the fact the, the fact that they came from Moses um, is not the reason we have to obey them because it's we, we obey them because they are from God. Um, so God's moral absolutes are eternal, and they have been in effect really all throughout history, and simply have been some of them have been revealed during Moses' time. We have to also recognize that there so so there were moral absolutes before Moses. Let me just give you a few examples. You can probably think of a uh, a dozen more, but you know, for example, in Genesis fourteen four fifteen, when Cain, when God made a command that no one could kill Cain, He basically put a mark on him so they would not be able to be killed. Uh, the law of retribution in chapter nine verse six: If you shed man's blood, by man will your blood be shed. Okay, that's a moral absolute that tra- transcends time, and that happened before the law of Moses. So, so it doesn't make it. Um, it doesn't require us to follow it because it was given during the law of, or during the time of Moses. Second reason we know that that um, we know that uh, <clears throat> that we don't have to obey it because it came during Moses' time is because 
there were people who lived righteous lives before Moses. Okay, can you think of an example? I just gave you, um, I just gave you uh, Noah. I didn't give you Noah, but Abraham. But can you think of any other examples of godly people before the time of Moses? Okay, Job. Good. Right, Job came before the uh, during the patriarchal patriarchal days before the law. Okay, got what was that? Enoch. Good. That was one I was thinking. Abel. Okay, he could list he could list uh, several more as well. So, so what I'm trying to suggest here is that when the covenant theology people who have that understanding of the scripture, when they say that there's only two choices, either you're under the law of Moses or you're lawless, what does that say about the people before the time of Moses? Okay, because they weren't under the law of Moses. Okay, were they under some proto law of Moses? Maybe I'm not sure how they would actually answer that question, but but I would argue that that I think that that is an invalid way of looking at the scriptures. So God administers His moral laws in different ways in different times, and uh, He He administered it to through His Word through, to Moses, and um, and since the cross He has administered His revelation, His Word to us, uh, apart from Moses. All right. So the second, the first reason is that that um, there are moral absolutes apart from the Mosaic Law. There's there's moral absolutes that are given apart from the Mosaic Law. The second reason is that the Mosaic Law is an indivisible unit. The Mosaic Law is an indivisible unit. <clears throat> It's true that you can break the Mosaic Law down into three sections or three aspects, three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. It's true that you can do that. But what I'm arguing is that that it is an individual. You can't take those pieces apart. Um, if a person is going to obey the moral law, they are to obey the entire law. Okay? And we're going to turn to several passages. I want to show you this. Galatians chapter 3. Is where we'll begin. Galatians chapter Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the ceremonial and civil or the moral aspects of the law. No, all things written in the book of the law to, the, to perform them. Okay, so, so what Paul is saying here is that a person who attempts to keep the entire Mosaic Law or to keep the Mosaic Law was supposed to keep every part of it, every aspect of it. And they were supposed to do it perfectly and continuously. And so Paul here, I think, is saying that the, the, that the law cannot be divided. Turn to chapter 5 now. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um Let's see here. Deuteronomy 27.2, yeah. Yep. Alright, so chapter 5, 
verse 3 is the next one we want to look at here. It reads, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So which aspect of the law, civil, ceremonial, or moral, is circumcision? Ceremonial. Okay, so what Paul's saying here is if you're going to keep that aspect of the law, then you need to keep the whole law. So this doesn't uh, this isn't a perfect correlation from what we're trying to prove. We're trying to say that if you keep the moral law, you need to keep the other two as well. Um, but it does show that, that the ceremonial law is tied to the entire law. That, that they are under, under obligation to keep the whole law. James 2.10 says, if, um, um can't think of the, how it starts there. Anyone help me out there? Right. Thank you. Okay, so if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, and I would argue that the one point that we could stumble in is civil or ceremonial. Okay, James is talking to to Jews there, and um, and so the the danger is to to try to keep the whole law, and what he's saying is that that we can't do it, um, and that's really what the purpose of the law was. We talked a little bit about that last week. The purpose was of the law was to show that we couldn't keep it that there needed to be someone who could come along and keep it to show us a better way. And that's why Jesus Christ came. And if you think about it, even the uh, civil and the ceremonial laws are not disconnected from the moral laws. Okay, We talked about three different categories that we could put all the laws into. But even when it says things like, when God says, don't eat pork, okay, um, if we eat pork, we we disobey the the, um, the the ceremonial law there, but we don't we also disobey a moral law. I mean, aren't we immoral when we disobey God's law to regarding ceremonies, ceremonial type things? I mean, aren't aren't we uh, immoral anytime we disobey God? So so it seems as if the moral law is always connected to the civil and the ceremonial, and. Uh, so if a person is obligated to keep the moral law of Moses, then then I believe the New Testament teaches that we need to keep the whole thing. The third reason um, that we know that this is not the right, or at least I would suggest that this is not the right way to look at the Scriptures, is that Christians are not under the Mosaic Law. Righteous believers are not... Um, I missed a couple blanks there, didn't I? Okay, you guys all caught up here? Alright. Christians are not under the Mosaic Law. Okay, we're going to turn back to Romans now and look at several passages there. Two times here, Paul says, you are not under law, or we are not under law. Talking about Roman believers and by extension all church age believers. We are not under law. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Would someone read those? Alright. So we are not under the law. We are under grace. Paul says two times. And look down to chapter 7, verse 4. Someone read that. 
become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Okay. So Christ freed us from the obligation of the law. You see that in the second line, at least in the New American Standard, law there is capitalized, speaking of the law of Moses. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. This is part of the reason Christ came, to, to destroy or to abolish, to fulfill the law. So, so you, um, in a sense, died to it. And then number three, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Is that, Sarah, did you want to read that? But now we have been Alright, so there, verse 4 says we die to the law. Verse 6 says we are released from the sphere of its operation. You're released from the sphere of the Mosaic Law's operation. Um, what does this free us to do? Well, it frees us to serve it serve God as Christians in this new life, in the newness of the Spirit. Or as she read, not in the oldness of the Mosaic Law or of the oldness of the letter of the law. It's freed us. We've been released in that sense. Alright, so turn back to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. And would someone read that for us? Alright. So, so Paul says, for, through the law, I died to the law. And as Christians, we all must die to the law. I died to the obligation of the law. And to enjoy this new spiritual life that's being offered, and I'll talk about what, what we're, we're made alive to do, um, but, but in or, order to enjoy this spiritual life, we have to die to the law. We, we get out from under the yoke of the law, the oppressive nature of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Someone want to read that for us? Why the law of it? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of mediators, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Alright, so why the law then? Paul asked the question, why, why do we even have it? And he says because of transgressions, but, but what we need to see there is that it's only tempor- temporary. It was temporary until, until what would come. Okay? Look at, look at the end of the verse. It says, until the seed would come. And, and you're right. That's Christ. That's speaking of uh, Eve's seed, Christ, who would come, uh, Abraham's seed, and, and the law basically served as a teacher. All right? So it's an only, only a temporary teacher. Look at verse uh, 20, that same verse. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're not under a teacher. What was the, what was the tutor in verse 24? It was the law. It was the temporary law. And Paul says clearly in verse 25, we're no longer under that law. We're no longer under that teacher. So it was only a temporary teacher to point us to Christ. But now that faith has came, in other words, now that faith has come through the Spirit, as it has since Christ has ascended, then, then uh, we no longer need the Mosaic law. Okay? Now, what I don't want you to be hearing in this class is that, that we don't need law at all. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Scriptures are teaching. There still is a law under grace. Okay? But, but when, I, when I say law, generally speaking in this class, I'm talking about the Mosaic law. So it's only a temporary teacher. And then next, those who live by um, those who live by the Spirit are not under the law. Those who live by the Spirit are not under the law. Look at chapter five, verse eighteen. Someone read that for us. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. All right, and who is led by the Spirit? Okay. Romans 8.14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Alright, so, so believers, Christians. So look at verse 18 again. But if you are led by the Spirit, Christian, then you are not under the law. You see, because apart from the law of Moses, we can still, we can still grow in righteousness. So what happened is in the Old Testament, the means to righteousness, okay, this is following salvation in the Old Testament, the means to righteousness was through the law. You had to obey the law. You had to, to believe that God's uh, promises were true and that, that, that our obedience was required with regard to the ceremonial, civil, and moral practices that were given by Moses. But when Christ came, He... he fulfilled the law and ended up abolishing the law so that so that we no longer are under the yoke of its its rule and uh, and we still have the ability so so now the way that we get to righteousness is not through the mosaic law but through the spirit okay and here's the key distinction notice at the end of the chapter uh well familiar verses verses 22 and 23 okay it talks about all of the the vices in the previous verses, then verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such thing, things there is no law. The point there is that, that the Spirit builds within us fruit or, or grows within us fruit. And He does it apart from the Mosaic Law. And that that's... Uh, that was true before the law of Moses that you had righteous believers who were growing. Okay, They were growing in righteousness apart from the Mosaic law. Now, they had a different law that they had to follow. That was the law of God. But, but, but the point is, is we don't have to be bound to the law of Moses. In fact, we can't be as, as Christians because Christ has already abolished it. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, turn over 
page probably in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, tells us that Christ came to abolish the law. Uh, would someone read verses 14 to 16? All right. So Christ is our peace. He made uh he made us into he broke down the dividing walls and then verse 15 by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So Christ came to abolish the law. Abolish means to dissolve a business relationship or put out of business. That's what Christ came to do with the law. He he abolished it. He put it out of business. And we we can see this further if we were to go to Hebrews. We're not we're not going to today. But um, when Christ replaced the Aaronic priesthood, that is the priesthood of Aaron, um, what did he replace it with? Anyone know? Whose priesthood? What is it? Uh, no, there is a there is a priest from the Old Testament who is not according to the law or the the order of Aaron's priesthood, Melchizedek. Right. Okay, so so Jesus came and He came uh, according to a different order and what He was doing there was He was putting away Aaron's priesthood. And Aaron's priesthood was set up by whose law? Moses' law. So when the priesthood of Aaron was put away, we needed to have a change. In fact, that's what Hebrews 7.12 talks about. There's There has to be a change in the law and the change there has the idea of of elimination. If Aaron's priesthood is put away and what what set up Aaron's priesthood uh, uh, will also have to be put away. If Aaron's priesthood is put away, then what, what set up Aaron's priesthood also has to be put away. And that's when Christ came with the Spirit, set up His priesthood through the line of Melchizedek. Now, why does this all matter? Why does it matter whether we're under the Mosaic Law or not? There are several reasons, um, but I'll I'll just give you two. Number one, we don't want to needlessly burden ourselves or our consciences when we read through the Old Testament. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk here in a minute about value of the Old Testament and its moral laws. We don't want to just throw them all out. Okay, we, we don't need them. They're not for us. Because, again, there are eternal eternal absolutes there, but there a lot of the moral laws are are not eternal. Okay? And and I'll I'll try to give you an example here in just a second. But but the point is we don't want to well, I'll just give you an example now. The Sabbath day. Okay? Commandment number four remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That the reason that we obey the other nine commandments is not because they were given by Moses. The reason we obey the other nine commandments is because each of them are repeated in the New Testament as something that we ought to do. That is, the church ought to do. The Sabbath 
is done away with. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and they kept going after Him on the Sabbath? And He said, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I, I am the Son of Man and I have power over the Sabbath. I can choose. Not that He was going, I'm, I'm just going to throw that out. I don't want to obey it. But what He was doing is He's actually changing it. And what you find is the believers in the, in the book of Acts and beyond are meeting on which day of the week? Not on the Sabbath day. What does Sabbath mean, by the way? It means seven. It means the seventh day. So, so what happens with people that follow the covenant theology sort of understanding, they say, well, the Sabbath actually just got moved to Sunday. See how they, they tend to have more than a literal interpretation? They use more than one meaning for, the, for words and, and concepts, and they do it with the Sabbath as well. They say, well, we, the Old Testament was the Sabbath. The New Testament, it's Sunday. That's our Sabbath. So we need to follow all the same sorts of principles but do those people, um, you know, travel less than however many miles they were? Was it two miles or something on those days? I, I can't imagine that they do. And so they pick and choose which parts of the Sabbath laws that they want to obey. And then they say, well, let's just say that we need to refrain from needless activity. But, but you see, for the church, that's not an obligation. That's why I say we go through the Old Testament we start reading through these Sabbath laws and we start to feel this weight on us as if that's meant for us. Now, there are laws for us in the New Testament and we should feel the weight of them, but not the Sabbath. Okay, Not a lot of these other laws. Trish. What verse is that now? 7.18. Yeah, the next verse says, For the law made nothing perfect, and the law there capitalized meaning the law of Moses. Okay, And that's, that's essentially what Christ came to do. He came to set it aside because of its weakness. That is, that it couldn't ultimately provide full and final righteousness. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. That Jesus provides a better way. Or we could say the best way. That He is a better priest. He comes with a better law. Um, that He's better than the angels. It starts from the very beginning. And and here it's yeah it's made clear there in verse 18 that it's, it's weak because it couldn't ultimately bring us to Christ. It couldn't ultimately bring us to God apart from Christ. It helps point us to the perfect lawmaker, Christ, and uh, and so that's why um, it has been set aside. So, so the first reason, we don't want to needlessly burden our conscience when we come to some passages in the Old Testament. second reason is that the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law highlights the glory of Christ. The fact that Christ was able to perfectly fulfill the Law of Moses shows how great Christ is. Okay? Uh, it was... Inadequate, the law was because it was as a teacher to the people of Israel, but it couldn't ultimately provide perfect sanctification, which happens uh, obviously in the next life, but, but it couldn't provide it apart from Jesus Christ. It really just pointed to Him. So what is the value of the Mosaic Law for us? Okay, Because we don't want to just cut out that portion of the Scripture and say, I guess it's not, not for us. Well, I hope that you 
uh, whenever you think of, when you, whenever you read through scriptures and you, and you have that question, what value is this to me? That you think back to second, or first Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17. It says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Okay? It is profitable in some way. And it's profitable in four ways, actually. And, um, so Mosaic Law is not unprofitable. It is profitable. It, it, the Old Testament will help us, Mosaic Law included, will help us to see who God is. What God demands of His people. And it will also help us see that, that there is a better way. That there's a better priest than Aaron. There's a better priest than any of the, the uh, priests that were listed in the Old Testament. There's a better king than David. There's a better prophet. Retta. Timothy. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Second Timothy. Thank you. Second Timothy. All right. So a better priest, a better king, a better prophet. That's a, that's what the Old Testament helps point us to. And when we see the failures of Israel and their leaders um, over and over again, how they they are inadequate to do the job that God ultimately requires. We see their failures, and when we see the death of God's people, and then they're crying out to Him, it makes us long for a perfect leader, an eternal Savior. And so when you go through the Old Testament, you should, you should be reminded of what Christ did and how he, he became that perfect leader for us by coming to the earth. The Old Testament also helps serve as an example as to how we ought to live. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. And we'll finish here. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 12. The Old Testament helps serve as an example. So you want to see an example of what it means to to bicker and complain? Okay, there, there are lots of examples in the Old Testament. You want to see a, an example of people who lose faith in God or have a lapse in faith? You can go to the Old Testament. You want to see an example of how to live faithfully before God, how to pray fervently. There are all sorts of examples in the Old Testament. Okay, so, so it gives us an example. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So Paul gives us a very clear application for, or very clear purpose for the Old Testament for us that they happened as examples so that we would not crave evil things. We've seen examples of how that didn't work in Old Testament history. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters. Uh, verse 8, Do not act immorally. Verse 9, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Okay, so, so the Old Testament is very valuable for us, not just 
all of the unchanging truths that we that we find in the Old Testament and that are still applicable for us today. Okay, I would say not just the ones that we find in Moses' law, but the entire Old Testament. Um, there are some unchanging truths. And the way that you determine what those are is you see what's repeated in the New Testament or what types of things have to do with the character of God. Obviously, God's character does not change. So if you see that God is uh, a judge in the Old Testament, well, He's not going to change to you know, a big teddy bear in the New Testament or something. Um, you have an unchanging God, and so those are eternal moral or, or eternal truths that 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 um that are of value to us. So they act as examples, they they help to keep us humble, they keep us from craving the evil that the Old Testament believers craved and, and unbelievers, obviously. And uh and so they, they act in that way to help lead us to help keep us on the right track. In other words, without the Old Testament we would be missing a big portion of our understanding about who God is, about who His people are, about how God responds to His people, about why we need a Savior. We would be missing all those things. We'd be missing things like uh, examples of of how a Christian or a believer ought to live when we, uh, if we just had the New Testament. So, what I hope you don't hear I'm saying is that the Old Testament is no value and that we are not under any law. I'm not saying either one of those things. We are under law but not under the Mosaic law, strictly. All right? Any uh, thoughts or questions? Trish. Okay. Oh. Four people in them because God said to go possess the land. So, well, yeah, there. <laughs> that was the command. Right. Moses about Right. Israel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you could take any command of any age, you know, even with our founding fathers of our country and, you know, they give a command to do something to the specific people they're talking to, uh, you know, or maybe even a certain locale, um, that doesn't mean that we, we follow it. Uh, when Jesus was talking to His disciples, he, he said, you know, when you go to these certain places, don't take any food with you, don't take any, any money, you know, just uh, get a place to stay and, and, and so on. I mean, are we supposed to obey that sort of thing? Um, because later on He says, when you do go places, this is after He's revealed that He's going to die and, and be resurrected. When He does that later, He says, uh, take some money with you. Make sure you have enough to take care of yourself. And so you have these two times when Jesus said, well, which one are we supposed to obey? You know, it, The point was, those commands were not for us specifically. Those were given to the disciples. And uh, there are commands, obviously, from Christ that that are effective for us. But... But 
those specific ones aren't. And you can take any statement in the Scripture and make it applicable to you if you want to or make it make it uh, mean, act as if it means that it's for you. But, but that's a very dangerous way to use language in general. Um, uh, so, we just have to be careful of that. That's a good, good uh, illustration. Sue. Well, they they think they are, yeah. Well, yeah, because they don't accept Christ. Yes, absolutely. Right, and they really, I mean, in general, right, and in general, they will do that. I mean, in general, I mean, the the most of the populace of the Jews will do that till the time of the end of the tribulation when they all turn to Christ. I mean, most of them will be killed. Um, but but there will be the 144,000 plus several others potentially um, that will come to Christ and actually believe. And at that, that, that point, they'll set aside the Mosaic Law. But yeah, you're right. They you, you're, you'll come in, if you if you come into contact with non-Messianic Jews, that's what you're going to find. Yeah, Mark. Right. Yeah. So, and they they really set aside the law of Christ, the you know the law given through the Spirit, and uh, in order to to take up the Mosaic law. So, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So we'll have one more class on this, and then we'll move on to systematic theology, which is basically just studying through the doctrines of Scripture. We'll take 26 weeks to do that, and I'm looking forward to that study. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for. Uh, the time that we can share together in Your Word, and and uh, certainly there are a lot of concepts in here that are difficult to understand, and and uh, will require some more thinking on our part and reflection, meditation, and uh, prayer. And we ask for Your help as we think through these things, as we go through the Scriptures ourselves, as we read through Exodus and Leviticus and so on. Uh, help us to understand them rightly. Help us to set aside the laws that are not for us, but but see clearly the ones that are even in the Old Testament that are eternal and and uh, absolute and uh, we pray that that um, you'd help us to be able to see see what you expect of us and uh, and that we'd be able to live lives that are worthy of our calling thank you for your grace and salvation and may you continue to point us to Christ and his worth we pray in Jesus name amen